welcome. This is Karen Modakaitis, and you're listening to How She Really Does It, where inspiration and possibility meet. I believe there are many ways to live life. I believe there are many journeys for us to take. I believe that we can learn from others to see what is possible for ourselves. There are many possibilities for all of us, not just the ones who have acquired great success, but including those of us who have stumbled, lost our way, or only saw closed doors. With this show, maybe you can now see a glimmer coming through the windows. I call that the windows of possibilities. Each week I bring a guest who represents those possibilities. They too have had their own struggles and their own uncertainty, yet somehow they have found their way. My guests are an example of what is possible when you continue, when you learn, leap, fall down, and get back up. I invite you into the space so you can ask yourself, if that is possible for them, what is possible for me? Really, ask yourself that. Join me each week for inspiration, empowerment, and entertainment. You can connect with me on my website at www.howshereallydoesit.com. There's a sign up for my newsletter and also links to Facebook and Twitter. You can send me an email. I love to hear from my listeners. Also, the live shows are put on my website and they're also available from iTunes. Daniel Pink is the author of four provocative books about changing the world of work, including the New York Times bestsellers, A Whole New Mind, and Drive, The Surprising Truth About What Motivates Us. Dan was last here discussing a changing work world and the new rules in an outsourced automated age. And today, Dan will be discussing how the old school belief of paying people more money to achieve better results is actually a detriment and how goals can narrow our focus. Dan will tell us about how we can motivate people, employees, kids, and our volunteers. Dan, hello and welcome back. Hey, Corin. Thanks for having me back. Yes, well, thank you. So let's first talk about, you talk about Motivation 2.0 and Motivation 3.0. Can you just give my listeners a little bit of background of what 2.0 was or is? Well, let's start even further back with okay. 1.0. Okay. All right, so, so what we have is we have human beings, you, me, our friends, spouses, family, uh, are a mix of drives. Uh, we have a biological drive. We eat when we're hungry. We drink when we're thirsty. Uh, we have sex to satisfy our carnal urges. Okay, that's part of what it is to be human, but obviously not all that it is to be human. Okay, and so early on in human history, I mean, I mean, early on. I don't mean last week or last month or last dec last <laughs> decade, but fifty thousand years ago. Uh, our, our motivational operating system for human society was built around that drive. It was built around survival. I was trying to get race faster than you so the saber-toothed tiger would get you rather than me. We're trying to find food, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and that was basically the, the drive that was at the center of society. Well, what happened? We, we, we got a little bit more evolved. We got a little bit more developed. We got a little bit more um, advanced. And for if I want to work with people outside of my clan, outside of my tribe, outside of my family, I want to work with people, maybe I don't do trade with people I don't know, that biological drive isn't going to work all that well. In fact, in some ways, you have to restrain it. So there's a second human drive that all of us have, and that's the drive to respond to rewards and punishments in our environment. Typically, when you reward behavior, you get more, you punish, you get less. And so that became kind of the operating system of human society um, and certainly the economy. 
Uh, it was the foundation of various kinds of trade. It was the foundation of many ways of modern economics, uh, certain kinds of social structures, and it worked really, really well. I mean, it was basically the operating system of the industrial economy, uh, the industrial revolution. I mean, it's a, just a monumental human achievement. But and we can call that motivation 2.0, which is basically an operating system. And when I say operating system, I mean it as a metaphor, basically a set of rules, assumptions about how people behave. And the operating system was really built on that second drive, that reward and punishment drive. Well, human beings also have another drive. They've always had another drive. And that is the drive to do things because they're interesting, because they're meaningful, because we want to direct our own lives, because they contribute to the world, because they're the right thing to do. That's always been part of what it is to be human. But today, what's going on is that um, that second drive, that reward and punishment drive, isn't the right sort of motivator. It doesn't constitute the correct sort of motivational operating system for the work that people are doing today. And we need to upgrade to motivation 3.0, which recognizes the biological drive, recognizes the reward and punishment drive, but is built more on that third drive. Um, and the reason for that, and forgive this incredibly long-winded answer, the reason for that is this. The, that second drive, that reward and punishment drive, this notion that if we, if we reward behavior, we get more of it, and we punish it, we get less of it. I went back and looked at 50 years of social science, and what 50 years of social science tells us is that that is true. That, that is absolutely accurate, that rewarding behavior gets you more, punishing gets you less. That is that, that is absolutely true a lot of the time, but not all of the time. And in the world of work, which is where I concentrate, those kinds of rewards, what I call if-then motivators, if you do this, then you get that, they're very effective for simple, straightforward, algorithmic, mechanical, routine kind of work, turning the same screw the same way on an assembly line. Uh, adding up columns of figures, stuffing envelopes very quickly. But if you look at 50 years of social science, those kinds of motivators just don't work very well for the complicated, complex, creative, non-routine sorts of things that most people are doing on the job. And so what we have, essentially, is a motivational operating system, Motivation 2.0, which is great for 19th century work, good for 20th century work, but we're still using it in the 21st century when the nature of work itself has changed fundamentally. And the science is very clear that if you want to motivate people to do that kind of work, you need a very different set of motivators. And, and why do we need different set of motivators? What is the reason? Well, the main thing is that Again, let's go to these if-then motivators. Mm -hmm. If you do this, then you get that. They are very effective for simple tasks and very effective in the short run. Why? Because they get you to focus. If you offered me 250 bucks to jump on my desk right now, I'm there. Okay? <laughs> I'm serious. I'm focused. I'm there. I'll do it. Right? It's simple. I block it. And so, you know, I don't even notice if anybody's coming in the door of my office. I don't notice whether the power has gone out. I'm locked in on getting onto that desk, standing there, and getting my 250. Um, that frame of mind, that narrow focus, is a very effective frame of mind 
for those kinds of tasks. Mm -hmm. So if you have something where you're just following a set of rules to a logical conclusion, marching down a path to a logical conclusion, then those kinds of motivators, those if-then motivators, they work really well. And, and a lot of work that people did for a long time, uh, you know, in the mechanical, uh, you know, industrial work, uh, mass production work in the, in the 19th and early 20th century, but even white-collar work in the 21st century, was really just that, following some rules, following a recipe, getting the right answer. Um, and the problem is, is that, again, I went, if you look at 50 years of social science, it says that that kind of reward doesn't work for the complicated, conceptual, complex things that most of us and certainly most of your listeners are doing. Because again, it goes back to this idea, it partly goes back to this idea of focus. If you lock in like a laser beam on something, that's great for a simple algorithmic task, that is where you're following an algorithm. But if you're trying to solve a complex problem, if you're trying to come up with something new, if you're trying to do something creative, that's not how creativity, innovation, complex solutions emerge. They emerge by thinking widely, by thinking expansively. And so what, you know, what we have is we have this bizarre thing going on, as I mentioned, where, where, where we've updated, where you know, the nature of what people do in the economy has changed, but the way we motivate people has not changed. It'd be, you know, we're sort of using an ancient technology in a, in a modern world. And I fear that most of us don't see that. And so when we see these carrot and stick motivators fail in our organizations, when they see them, when we see them flop before our very eyes, when we see them fail before our very eyes, our response too often isn't to say, man, those carrot and stick motivators failed again, let's try something new. Instead, we say, man, those carrot and stick motivators failed again, I guess that means we need more carrots, you know, I guess that means we need sharper sticks. And it's taking us down a fundamentally misguided path. Again, not misguided necessarily in any moral sense, but completely inconsistent with what the science of motivation tells us what we should be doing. And in, in, a world of, in the world of business, which is the world that I look at, in the world of business, the world of business thinks of itself as tough-minded, hard-headed, you know, evidence-based. And yet, when it comes to motivation, they're making... They're, they're hinging so many of their policies in folklore about what motivates people rather than science. Well, you know, as I'm reading your book, um, I was just getting so frustrated because I'm in California and I live in a town where there's a, one of our universities of California. And right now California's broke. And what I see the university doing and what I read in your book, we're in your, in your thinking this is a cutting, this is a top notch university, but they're not even looking at the science of how to manage and the president of our university is saying we're losing people because we can't pay them enough money and it's that whole well, that could be i mean i don't want to rule that out i mean because you know again this is not this research is not an argument against money money actually matters a heck of a lot it just matters in a slightly different way than we think okay. and so um and this is a really really important point corin so let's 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 just let me just talk about money for 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 a second I mean, money really matters, and so the conclusion from this set of research should not be, should never be, money doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. You can just not pay people enough and, and, and replace that financial remuneration with all of these bliss-centered rewards. That's a total non-starter. key here is that money, in the world of work, money matters a lot, but it matters differently than the way that we think. It matters like this. 
if you don't pay people enough, if you don't compensate people adequately, you're not going to get motivation, period. Um, and the thing is, and what might be going on with the faculty or the staff that you're describing at that university, is that people, human beings, are exquisitely attuned to the norm of fairness. Um, what does that mean? If you don't treat people fairly, it's over. You're not going to get motivation. And people assess their fairness, into, fairness in, in a work and compensation system in two ways. First, they look at it internally. Am I getting paid what someone else doing similar work here is getting paid? And, and, or, and am I getting paid comparably to what someone doing this kind of work at a similar institution, similar kind of company is getting paid? And if, you, and if the answer to those questions is no, then it's over. I mean, it's like you're just not going to get motivation, period. You'll get, you might get the minimum amount of effort necessary for that person not to get fired. So it could be that the university president is correct. Uh, I, I mean, I have to, I'd have to know the facts, that, that people who are at that university are getting paid less than their peers doing similar things, and that's just unfair, and, and, I, and people would want to move for that. Where we run into problems, and so there's a paradox, as there are so many paradoxes in this basket of ideas. The paradox is that, you know, money does matter, but in many ways the best use of money as a motivator is to pay people enough to take the issue of money off the table, to pay people enough so to focus on the money, so to focus on the work and not on the money. And so if the university president said, well, what we're going to do is we're going to, give pe we're going to pay people by how much research they do, Every paper you write and publish, you're going to get $1,000. Every research grant you get, you're going to get a portion of that. That's a disaster. That's a disaster. But if people aren't getting paid enough or aren't being treated unfairly, then you've got, you got, to, you got to get their pay up. So, well, Dan, what's adequate? Very good point. Very, very good question. This is not the kind of thing where... It's not a scientific question in the, say, in the sense of, you know, what's the boiling point of water? The boiling point of water is 100 degrees Celsius, okay? <laughs> That's a, you know, it's like everybody knows that. And if you want water to boil, you turn it up to 100 degrees Celsius. Um, fairness is much more inscrutable. Fairness is a philosophical concept. And you're never going to, if you're running a company, running an organization, even having a small team of people, you're never going to dial down that sense of fairness to zero. Um, you won't. There's going to be some level of grievance. There's some level of grievance, you know, founded or unfounded in every system involving human beings. Um, uh, and so, it's, uh, there, so there, isn't a, there isn't an easy answer to that. Generally, you know, people... It's one of those things where people know it when they see it, at least at the moment. And it's really a case of, you know, if you compare yourself to others, again, doing similar kinds of things, similar levels of contribution, are you being woefully underpaid? And if you are, then it's demotivating. Um, in, in some ways, there's some very, very interesting research that showed that, I mean, I don't want to empty the room of all your listeners here, but there's some <laughs> interesting... Interesting research from an economist who ended up winning the Nobel Prize in economics, and, and he was looking at wages. He was looking at wages in Northern California. Mm -hmm. Now I'm I'm here in I'm here at Pink Ink World Headquarters here in Washington D.C. A.K.A. my garage. And here in Washington D.C., let's say that I wanted to let's say that I was not Pink Ink World Headquarters. 
years, but I was running a, um, a lot, I don't know, we have a lot of trade associations here. And let's say that I was hiring an accountant with six years of experience to work at my trade association. An accountant with six years of experience working at a trade association here in D.C., I don't know. I'm, I'm guessing here. I'm guessing an accountant with six years of experience working at a trade association here in D.C. is going to make somewhere between, say, forty and $60,000 a year. That's, I, that, that might, mm -hmm. I think that's kind of close. We'll just say it's true. Um, what this economist noted was that in some companies in, in California, um, and, and so, so what does that mean, between forty and sixty? That means that if I offer somebody $35,000, i am probably not going to get anybody to take the job. Uh, but what it also means is that I don't need to be offering people 65 because most people take the job at 60. Got it? Um, and so what this economist noticed was that some of the companies in Silicon Valley and in other parts of Northern California for the various jobs, they were paying people above, that, uh, above whatever the range would be for that particular profession in that particular market. That is, in, in our circumstance, they would be paying, they would be paying people $70,000. I mean, they were they were overpaying, right? I mean, the, the, you know, everybody would have everybody interviewing would have taken the job at sixty, and they're saying, "No, I'll give you 70. Okay, so it seems absurd. Why would anybody want to do something like that? You're leaving money on the table. You're overpaying. It's anti-economic. Well, the curious thing is that this this economist went back and looked at the firms that were doing that, and it turned out that the firms that were doing that were among the highest performing firms there. And what they were doing, in a sense, was this: they were paying people enough to take the issue of money off the table. They're paying people enough so the issue of fairness never came up. And there's this weird paradox here, and it goes to the way that you introduce things. It's not even a paradox, it's just a misguided view. We have this belief, especially in organizations, that the way to get people to perform better is to raise the salience of money. Mm -hmm. Get people the money they can make, or the money they risk losing. And the truth is, is that 50 years of social science says the way that you get people to perform better on the job is to reduce the salience, the significance of the work rather than the money. And one of the great ways to reduce the salience of the work is to reduce the salience of the money. And so if you take the issue of money off the table, pay people fairly and where you can, you know, a little bit more than fairly, they're not thinking about whether they have a grievance. They're not thinking about whether they're being treated well. They say, wow, I'm being treated pretty well. Now I can focus on my work. And for the complicated, complex, creative kinds of tasks, again, as I said, that, that most people in the white-collar, even blue-collar workforce today are doing, the, the, the sorts of jobs that I'm sure that you know, 95% of your listeners have, uh, uh, that, is the best, that is the best approach. Well, so, you know, going back to this, because I, I used to be a tenured faculty at a community college, and I was a coach in a, in a, in a you know, taught health and that kind of stuff. So, but it was interesting because when you talk about adequate, I mean, we were very well compensated. And what started to happen was I would see in department meetings, well, we need to be paid more, especially when times when the era was really good. We need to be paid more. We want more mm -hmm. money. Look at what Division One basketball coaches make or whatever. Right. And, and, my, and my comment was, wait a second, we have tenure. You know, our contracts aren't determined by wins and losses. If you want that great reward, there's great risk yeah. on the other side. 
And yeah. so my comment with what's happening at the University of California, it's almost to that degree. It's like, well, what is adequate? And I was in D.C. recently and I was talking to a friend who works at a university out there and the med- one of the medical schools. And um, and he was saying, oh, well, this is this is what the market will bear. And my question with all of that is if it may, may be what the market will bear. But is it sustainable? Because I'm seeing all these long term agreements that have been made with pensions, especially in the state of California. And all of a sudden we're, we're looking at pension reform. We're looking at how can we pay yeah. our bills? So, you know, and it was it's it stemmed from this academia yeah, now yeah. taking the business world of, oh, if we if we can buy better people, then we're going to have better results, which I found to be contrary from the information in your book. Tell me where I'm wrong, Dan. About what buying better people will get you better results. Yeah, pay pay people more money or buy you know find better people with better money and you're going to get better results. Like let's up the ante. We if, if we put in if we put more money in we're going to get better. Yeah, I think that there's a little bit of truth to that, but not necessarily. And and the way that you see that is, I mean, the best actual real life empirical test of that is professional sports. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you look at say the correlation between wins and salaries. Um, it's not nearly as perfect as one would think, and so it's you know it turns out not to be it turns out not to be true a lot of the time. Now that said, I mean here's the thing in professional sports, uh, the you know the the best home run hitter in a season should get paid more than the worst home run hitter. I mean that's just fair, um, and so but I think the idea that simply Holding out the prospect, the idea of holding out the prospect of money, uh, and thinking, okay, that's all we need to do to get high performance, is, as you say, just dead wrong. Science does not, science does not show that. The trouble that we have, especially inside of organizations, is that we don't really know what else to do. Um, you know, we essentially have one. Managers seem to have one tool in their toolkit, mm-hmm. and they keep using or two, you know, carrots and sticks, and they keep using it and reusing it. And when they don't work, they just try to use it more intensely or more frequently. And the good news in all of this is that if you harvest the science of motivation, you'll discover that there are, the science shows us some ways to promote enduring motivation, particularly for the more creative and conceptual tasks, and that there are many companies and organizations out there that are acting in a way that's very consistent with these principles. This is Corinne Modokaitis, and you're listening to How She Really Does It. My guest today is Daniel Pink. He's the New York Times bestselling author of Drive, The Surprising Truth About What Motivates Us. And so when you talk about these organizations and these these companies out there, you know, and maybe because my walls are so limited, especially being so surrounded by academia for so long, you know, are these just more young entrepreneurial companies? Because you put them in your book. Or can we start seeing them in more traditional? I know you talked about Toyota making some yeah. transitions with flow and stuff, but is this something that we can see? Do you see this cha- these changes happening, or are we still stuck in the folklore that you referred to? I think it's both. I okay. mean, I think that there are these changes are happening out there, but at the same time, there are plenty of examples of places that are still stuck. And I think that the dividing line is dividing lines are somewhat complicated. For instance, I think that, that these sorts of, this, the, the sort of approach of emphasizing autonomy and self-direction, mastery, that is our desire to get better at stuff, purpose, that is plugging what you do into something larger than yourself, um, 
those kinds of principles, I think, are easy to, easier to enact in a smaller place rather than a larger place. Uh, it's easier to enact in a, uh, a private company rather than a publicly held company because publicly held companies are under this intense, maniacal, quarterly pressure to hit their numbers, and that's all that they, many of the people there really care about. And finally, um, um, you know, sometimes, depending on the level of, regu depending on the regu level of regulation, uh, it's harder to do, it's easier to do in a less regulated industry than in a more regulated industry. So this is one re reason we see some of these best practices emerging from software companies. Because many of them, not all, many of them tend to be smaller, privately held, uh, and not in regulated industries. And in, in fact, a lot of the, you know, some of my very, very favorite examples do come from software companies. And yet, they're applicable to a whole range of industries. Mm -hmm. Is it also because they're just younger and so maybe they have a different mindset and not the years and years of training of this is the way you're supposed to do it? I think so. I think you're right. They have less to unlearn than your typical 47-year-old executive. Because, I mean, and I know just being a coach, it's so easy to just fall back on, well, this is the way we've always done it. But when you're constantly right. learning and willing to grow and going, okay, this is the way we, maybe we've done it, but is it getting me the results that we're looking for? And well, I'm sure you've seen it as a coach. I mean, that's, that's difficult. That's a difficult egg to unscramble for one person. Now imagine unscrambling that egg for well, and, um, you know, I mean, it's, we talk a lot about learning, but the only thing harder than learning is unlearning. And there's a lot of learned behavior, a lot of learned attitudes about what really motivates people. And they turned out to be wrong if you want people to have to perform well. Not wrong in a moral sense, just they just don't work. Yeah, you know, um, as so as I'm reading your book, because I do, I had, my, my umbrella is a lot. I have this radio show, you know, I... I do my life coaching and weight loss coaching. And then like kind of my test pool is, has always been swimming. So, you know, I've talked about this before, but, um, I coach a youth team now and I was, I've been a college coach, but it's kind of like my, it's where I do my case studies with all the stuff right. that I learned. Right. And, and to see, and so how to motivate people, how to get, how to inspire people about the possibilities for themselves. And so one of the tools, and I've been wanting to talk to you about this is about, we use, we do things called thumbs up. So this is with like, you know, young kids and, Use it even college kids, but so we'll ask for a specific skill set, specific thing for each appropriate person, you know, so uh -huh. it may vary. And then they either get a thumb up or a thumb down, so they get automatic feedback at the uh -huh. end from the coach. Uh -huh. and so you'll, they'll swim a lap, say we'll do the lap of butterfly. They'll swim a lap, and it's either a thumb up or a thumb down, depending on who they are and what their capability is, right? What yeah. the specific thing. And so one of the things that I've been thinking about as I've been doing this coaching approach the last couple of weeks and preparing for this interview is, are we giving people too much feedback? Interesting. Interesting. I, I'm going to answer that question, no. Okay. Um, I, I think that in, in your case, um, the feed, you know, the, the only, I actually like your system. The only danger of your system is that people start doing what they need to do um, for the thumbs up, that, mm -hmm. the, that it goes from this big difference between feedback and a reward. Mm -hmm. That is... Um, if you do something in order to get the thumbs up, then I'm a little bit concerned because then the, then the, then the thumbs up becomes the goal. If the thumbs up is simply information on your performance, then I think it's actually really healthy. And, the, and a reason for that is that I, I actually think that the, we have the exact opposite problem, certainly in most organizations, and most organizations are 
feedback deserts. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you think about it, you know, the world that most of us live in is incredibly rich in feedback. That You know, we send a text, a little sound goes out to indicate that it was sent. Uh, we um, uh, we want to call somebody, we just pick up their phone, we pick up a phone, we don't go anywhere, we don't even walk into our house, we just grab the phone out of our pocket and call that person and it reaches them directly. Uh, we play a video game, we get a score, we, we, um, uh, we press a button, something happens. Uh, we want to know, you know, the largest export of Ecuador, and boom, we can find it out in 13 seconds. And so I think most people, particularly younger people, and by younger I mean 35 and under, most younger people have essentially always lived in this world of intense, unrelenting, rich, regular feedback. Mm-hmm. And the trouble we face is that when we put those exact same people into an organization, Typically, they go from this world of rich, lush, constant, regular feedback to a world where they get feedback once a year mm-hmm. in an annual performance review. I mean, it's absurd. And so I actually think that, that a mechanism like the one that you're describing, if it's deployed well, could be very useful inside of companies. Mm-hmm. Well, and I, and I think Because people are starving for that sense of feedback. And again, not, I don't mean necessarily, I don't mean praise or recognition, but I mean just like, how am I doing? Well, how's it going? What's happening? Well, and it's interesting because I remember when I was on faculty, you know, you get your reviews once a year or three, depending, once you made 10 years, like every three years. But there was also this thing of, well, I don't want to do damage. I don't want to give feedback that wouldn't be good because then they may come back and do feedback for me. That's not Yeah, good, right? that's a really good point. Yeah. And, and so, so that, that creates a level of inauthenticity that works against everything. Yeah. You know, or so and so, you know, and one of the things when I work with my staff and manage them, it's like, okay, what is our intention? What are we trying to do? If we're trying to help people, are we accomplishing that? And so that's the way I can give feedback to my staff is to say, you know, is this helping us get to what we want to do? Even as a coach, if we're doing this activity or this drill or this swim set or whatever, is are we are we getting? Is it helping us get further along in what we're trying to accomplish? You know, teaching right. them a skill or something. But one of the things I'm starting to notice is because we play, we do the thumbs up, thumbs down, and then sometimes we play this game called Karen says. And, How does uh, that work? <laughs> and Karen says it's been interesting. So Karen says is well, just what Karen said. I, you know, me, and then I tell them, and it's kind of like thumbs up, thumbs down, except it's different. If you do well, you get a plus one. If you do like, if you listen or you know whatever the skill may be, if you uh, make, if you don't do the skill set, you get a minus two. And we work together as a group. So if there's 10 or 18 kids and we have to get 80 points. So, and we just keep counting the points and work together as a group. You need someone to keep score too. Well, yeah. So then you need the kids to be a number keeper. So you ask who wants to be a number keeper. So you have leaders and stuff. It takes a little bit more time, but it's interesting because the kids like to play that game. They like to play Mm. Corinne says. What do you think they like about it? um, I think they like the engagement. They like to have that feedback. It gives them kind of a sense of purpose besides just swimming, you know, because some of the kids don't really know why they're at swim practice. I mean, they're eight, nine, you know, they may like to swim, but it's like, why do I have this person telling me what to do every lap? So it helps them get a little bit engaged. But yesterday it was interesting, and it could have been my my own energy too, was I just had a hard time getting them focused. And so as I'm testing this out going, am I giving them too much feedback? Can we just have a practice where they're intrinsically motivated, not motivated by a thumb up or a thumb down or by, you know, what Corinne says, but and I'll just give them feedback without any up or down or plus or minus. 
And um, and that was kind of interesting because some of them just decided they would rather keep their heads underwater, which is still age appropriate. So I didn't get too worried about that. Um, and then some of them who were more intrinsically motivated were like, OK, now you have some who are young kids who are like, hey, I want to be fast. So now I understand if I swim a right. little better, I'll be fast. They'll be more apt to listen, you know. Um, but it's, it's kind of interesting. So I think one of the important things on my side that I'm going to be evaluating over the next few months is that not to do the same thing over and over because it becomes too, it starts to become mundane, right? So don't always do thumbs up and don't always do Karen says kind of mix it up in different ways to engage them and finding different yeah, ways. I, I think that's very, very good guidance. So, okay. Well, then I feel good about that. Thanks for the concept <laughs> there, Dan. <laughs> This is Karen Modekaitis, and my guest today is Daniel Pink. He's the New York Times bestselling author of Drive, The Surprising Truth About What Motivates Us. So, Dan, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about, because you talked about Carol Dweck, who I've had on the show before, and she has just incredible research. Mm-hmm. Um, but you talk about learning goals versus performance goals. Yeah. Uh, learning goals are essentially mastering the material, getting a deep understanding of something. Uh, performance goals are hitting the metric that is being measured. And uh, we tend to think, well, if people hit the metric that's being measured, then, and our measurements are right, then uh, we'll know whether they learned or not. And it's just it's true. Um, and I can even give you an example from my own uh, experience to um, uh, explain that. Uh, so I took uh, French for six years. I took French for six years, high school and college. I got straight A's in French every single marking period. <laughs> I got an A in French. I can't speak French. Mm-hmm. Okay, why? Because it was all about performance goals. I was, I mean, I, I don't, I don't want to blame anybody else. I'll blame myself. It's like all I cared about were the, were the performance goals. Uh, the performance goal was getting an A in the test. The performance goal was getting an A in the quiz, getting an A in the class. How do you do that? You, conjug- you, you memorize the conjugations of the verbs. You memorize your vocabulary doesn't matter whether it falls out of your head the next day because it's all about the performance. Uh, it doesn't matter whether you have any deep understanding of the language or can actually use it in context. It's all about getting the grade. And the, the consequence of that is they, they would, someone would look at me superficially or someone would look at my record superficially and say, oh, wow, this dude, got, this, this dude must be good at French. You know, maybe I need to, you know, wow, is there, he might be a pretty good French speaker. He, got, he took French for six freaking years and got straight A's. This guy must be awesome in French. And when, in fact, I can't speak French <laughs> uh, because it was all about the... I mean, I regret, I don't, I regret it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was all about the performance goals. And the other thing that, that Carol Dweck has shown, and, and others, is that when people have... Well, there are other kinds of things. That, that is, if, your goal, if, you're, if you only care about performance goals, you're less likely to have deep, deep learning. Uh, it ends up being a little bit more superficial and a little bit more short-term. When it comes to, but the, but the converse isn't necessarily the case. And if I had spent my time saying, you know what, I'm going to learn French. I'm going to learn French so I can speak French. My goal isn't to get an A on the quiz. My goal is to learn how to speak French. Chances are that I probably would have gotten okay grades, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it doesn't run both ways, that learning goals, if you, if, you, if you start with learning goals, you, you might hit a lot of your performance goals. If you start with performance goals, there's absolutely no guarantee at all, to put it mildly, that you're going to hit any of your... Um, if you start with performance goals, there's no guarantee at all that you're going to uh, hit your performance goals. I'm sorry, you're going to hit your learning goals. 
You know, um, my husband's a, we're a swimming family, but my husband's a swim coach at a university and he's coached youth for years and he's always been very anti-goals. And so a few weeks ago we were talking about this because I was trying to understand and he has a hard time articulating things, but he would, um, cause I was, I had interviewed one of his former athletes and, um, he was, who was very successful. And I said, well, you know, did you have goals with him when he was little? And he goes, well, no, but he had goals and I was aware of it. But my husband said the best the best what he did was instead of saying you need to have this time or you needed to be the number one in the country it was okay you need to go you need to get 100 points and every day you go to practice you get plus one and every time you miss a practice you get a minus two and once you get to 100 points then we'll know that that was a good outcome and that was also what happened was he swam really fast after those hundred points and does that sound like a learning goal like because learning about the pro because my husband's always about yeah the that's interesting that's um i'm not sure uh it, it, it's interesting because if he is it really i mean there's subtle distinctions here so if he's going to practice only in order to get the points then i think it's not so great <laughs> but if he is going to practice and the points serve as a form of feedback yes. and a way to measure how he's doing it um, you know whether he is actually going to practice and whether he's being diligent. Uh, then I think it's you know then I think it's I think it's perfectly fine. And um, it's curious because goals. I mean, as you know, corn goals have you know goals are a mixed bag. We tend mm-hmm. to think that they're universally great, and they're good in many many things. But they're not you know a perfect universal all-purpose elixir. Mm-hmm. And um, and there are a lot of times that goals, particularly short-term goals with high-stakes payoffs, can encourage people to cheat, to cut corners, mm-hmm. uh, and, do, uh, and do those kinds of things. It's interesting. I mean, we are less, I think, of a swimming family than you, or, but, but we have three My wife and I have three kids. I was not a swimmer growing up. Mm-hmm. But my wife and I have three kids, all of whom are swimmers on the swim team. And, you know, my, um, you know, what I tend to talk to them about with regard to swimming is, you know, did you drop time? Mm-hmm. Um, doesn't matter. I'm not saying, hey, you have to swim the, you know, the, I'm like an eight-year-old, you know, your goal is to swim the 25, you know, freestyle <laughs> in 17 seconds. But, um, but my, but I, but I say, you know, are you getting a little, you know, are you getting a little bit better? Are mm-hmm. you, you know, are you going to practice? And when you go to a meet, did you drop any time today in any of your, it's not like you're going to drop time in every single race and every single meet. But, you know, what happened in your I don't care whether they win or lose. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think at some level, they don't care too, too deeply about that. They don't care. I mean, obviously, they'd rather be in first place than in second, and they'd rather be in second place than in third. And they'd rather be, you know, in third place than not, or fourth place than not placing at all. But, to, you know, what I'm trying to teach them, maybe, I don't know whether it's sticking, is that what's really more important is, you know, are you making progress? Are you getting a little bit better? Mm-hmm. Uh, and in swimming, there's a very simple metric for that, which is time. And mm-hmm. so my kids come back. My kids have a swim meet tomorrow morning. And so, you know, I'll, you know, I'll say to them, um, you know, maybe I'll talk to them about goals, or maybe they'll be thinking about the goals. But the goals would not be, I'm going to get first place in the 100 IM. It's going to be, you know, which of my races do I have a chance to drop some time? Mm-hmm. Well, and I, and I think that because we do that, we have um, this thing. It's a it's a towel, 
and our team's name is Aqua Monster. So if you get so many best times over the course of the scene, you, you get this towel and it said, I've had a monster year, right? And so, Interesting, yeah. so you're always just striving for best times because I think when people, and this, I think all this stuff is applicable. You can take it and apply it in different areas so you can still apply it in the workplace. But if people only have one way of measuring, right? A measuring stick is you can only win. So there's only winners and losers, right? And that's when kids first walk into the pool. It's like, well, all I can do is win or lose. Right. I go. I watch a baseball game. You either win or you lose. There's right. lots of different other measurements. And so going, okay, now I can look at my times. Am I, am I doing that? And then the other point that you brought out, which I think is really important, is you're not always going to get a best time. And parents no. sometimes get frustrated, but parents get frustrated about that. And so one of the things that I talk with people is that, okay, maybe you're not going to get a best time, but what are, or maybe they're not going to get a best time, but what are things that they learned? Did they do things mm-hmm. that I asked them to execute? I do exactly. This, you know, I do this with my clients. I do this with my staff that I manage. It's like, okay, you know, we can, there's many different forms of measurement and let's look at that because it's not just the simple recipe. And... I, mean, I think that that kind of self-diagnosis is really important because itself is a form of feedback. That mm-hmm. is, you can come up with, I mean, good athletes, good musicians, good mm-hmm. anybody's, uh, actually figure out how do I get feedback from my environment. And so I think that's very healthy, say, in swimming, say, after a race, say, oh, man, you, you know, you actually didn't do that much better. You're not saying you suck, that's terrible, <laughs> but, you know, why do you think? And have them, and have them say, oh, you know what, I, I, began my, I think I began my turn too early, mm-hmm. or... I didn't get off the blocks fast enough, or, um, um, you know, I don't, I'm not that sophisticated about well, no, that's you know, a- or, or, or my, you know, my streamline at the beginning was a little bit off. And that's really helpful because that helps people get, that helps, that, that helps, that kind of self-diagnosis, acquiring that feedback allows you to, allows you to improve. This is Karen Motokaitis, and I'm, um, you're listening to How She Really Does It. My guest today is Daniel Pink. He's the New York Times bestselling author of Drive, The Surprising Truth About What Motivates Us. And so, you know, Dan, I know you are wor- the workplace organization. That's what you study. I think yeah. so much of your book can be applied to all the different areas, and that's why I brought that in into the intro because it can be the workplace. It can be, you know, raising your children. It can be um, coaching a swim team. It can be in anything. And one of the things that, you know, for a while I couldn't figure out this path that I was on and why I was doing this radio show, but one of the things that um, has been my purpose for the last 18 years was to show people, because I grew up with a very fixed mindset mother. I had the yeah. kind of the tiger mom. I'm half Asian, so I had this tiger mom who was very darling. Oh, but, okay. Uh-huh, uh-huh. You know, but it was you have you have the gate student, and you're either smart or you're not, or you're talented yeah. or you're not, right? And yeah. so, but I realized that because of her, my my career has been spent about showing people what is possible, and so right. that's how everything I do kind of fits together at this point now, mm. and. Um, but, and I understand what my purpose is. And you talk about purpose and how that can be important to intrinsic motivation. Can you say a little bit about that? Sure. Uh, and, I, and I think this, um, I think it really goes, let's go beyond sports, but even to, um, even to teaching more broadly and to school. Mm-hmm. Um, people do better when they know why they're doing something. Mm-hmm. And in our schools especially, it's almost all about how. Here's how you do long division. Here's how you do it quickly. Here's how you do algebra. Here's how you do trigonometry. Make sure you do it right. We're going to check. There's rights and wrong answers on the test. And there's not enough about why. Why are we taking algebra? Why do we study trigonometry? How, you know, why does, why does uh, trigonometry build on, on, on algebra? 
why is this concept in algebra important in the world? And it's true in the workplace as well, that people, you know, that you have bosses say, do this. Mm-hmm. And they say, you've got to do it this way, and you've got to do it on time. And people don't, and they never explain, well, why are we doing this? Why does, what, why does this contribute to the larger whole? And there's a lot of actually really, really interesting evidence out there in the social science that shows that simply having that conversation about why, raising that notion of purpose um, to the surface um, matters a lot. I saw, you know, with my own kids, you know, with, um, you know, when they start getting homework and they come back, you know, after the blue, you know, after, you know, homework when you're really little is kind of cool. But, you know, after not too long, you know, I say, why am I doing this homework? And, and you know, you know the, the old-fashioned parent in me says, uh, just be quiet and do your homework. But it's actually a pretty good question. You know, why, you know, why, why am I doing homework? Why does this fit in? And um, I think adults tend to think of those kinds of questions as truculent, back-talking, and when in fact they're actually very, very insightful. And the reason that many adults get rankled by that is because they don't have a good answer to them. And we have to become conscious and really think about that, right? And then, yeah. and and uh, and even in the workplace, like if you if you question it, then the manager has to explain why and do some teaching. And there's an expectation out there. Well, you should just know, you know. And right, exactly. And I and I think that's I think that's false. I mean, there's a very interesting study that I write about um, of 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 call centers um, where call centers at the University of Michigan raising money for the University of Michigan. And each night uh, for two weeks before the call center, um, they, they were on the phone raising money. They had, they had three different groups of callers. The first group, nothing happened to them. That's the control group. The second group, each night before they made calls, read letters from people who used to work in the call center testifying to um, you know, what they learned there. And the third group read letters from people who'd been on the receiving end of the money that was raised there. So, you know, so the second group read letters, um, hey, I, I used to work at this call center, and I learned communication skills and negotiation skills, and now I'm using it in my job. Third group read letters, hey, I, I, uh, I got a scholarship thanks to some of the money raised here, and I was able to go to college, and now I'm a uh, pediatrician somewhere. And it turned out that simply that five minutes of purpose, reminding people why they were doing what they were doing, had a huge uh, upward impact on how much money they raised, uh, because it, it said it. You know, people not only knew how to raise money, but they knew what the purpose was of doing it in the first place. And so, purpose can be actually an incredible, incredible performance enhancer. And yet, and yet, and yet, um, a lot of times we don't have the vocabulary to talk about it. We don't have the courage to uh, discuss it, and we th- we dis- we dismiss it as soft and frilly when, in fact, it's actually pretty fundamental to people doing good work. Well, then it get, it reminds people of why they are doing what they're doing. Because sometimes you get into the job, and it becomes the mundane. It's the ordinary, right? Exactly. And you forget why you're here. You know that you want the money at the end of the month so that you can pay your bills. But there may be other reasons that you're there, and you just kind of forget. It's just like kind of running a household, even. And when you understand right. what your purpose is, then it's like, oh, well, this I'm here to help people. I mean. And you exactly. go, okay, I'm here to help people. So am, and then you can self-check yourself. Am I helping people? Am I being of use if that's what you want to do? I, I think that's really good. And, and, and the thing is, that then, then how do you, I mean, I think you're, I, I'm totally with you. And so the question then becomes how to, you know, how to, whether you're, the unit is a family or a workplace or anything else, 
how do we come up with mechanisms to bring that to the surface? And I think that, you know, you're describing a form of self-check, mm-hmm. sort of asking, yourself a, asking yourself a series of questions that try to elicit this answer. Uh, but I think that in the workplace, good managers, good bosses are able to do that. They remind people what the point of the exercise is. They remind people about why they're doing this stuff in the first place. Um, and, uh, the, 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 the trouble is, is that most bosses, most managers don't do that ever. Mm-hmm. No, there's a lot of telling. You know, it's interesting. Um, I went up to one of my longtime staff people the other day and asked to take him out to breakfast. And I said, you know, and he was a little nervous. And I said, you know, here's here's what I here's the purpose. Here's what we're going to talk. I'm, here's what we're not going to talk about. And here's the purpose. Here's my question. You have 12 hours to think about this. I want to know how I can be of better help to you. And he looked at me, he was kind of stunned. And so we went to breakfast the next morning and, and, I, and we kind of chit-chatted. Then I said, okay, so, you know, did you, ha- did you think of stuff? And he goes, you know, I wrote it down. And we had, it was a very good conversation. Can and, you say what are the, some of the things that he suggested? Um, so this was one of my swim coaches who's been with me for a long time. And um, he was one of my husband's former athletes. Um, well, he, there were very specific stuff of, um, you know, like equipment that he needed just to be a better mm-hmm. coach, you know, just... Um, he suggested stuff about programming, you know, how he would like to take, cause he has, he coaches the oldest kids on our team, how he would like to take, expand the coaching hours, you know, right. actually do more work, which is, goes with what your, um, stuff says he, um, so he wanted to increase his work. He wanted to, um, how he could best, some of it was reducing cause he has like 13 to 18 year olds. So some of it was changing some of that group structure. What else? He wanted more vacation time. That's good, though. And it, what, what's interesting is that he was obviously, I don't want to say sitting on these things, but they were at least latent. And bringing them to the surface is helpful to both of you. Yeah, no, and it gave him a voice. And, and you know, when he suggested we take a, a week off in August, I said, well, you know, that will be something that we'll think about. Here's also why we swim in August. It's still really hot. So, mm-hmm. you know, but I appreciate that. Like, and that's the other thing is that I, I was emailed one of my coaching clients this morning because she was upset. She had asked her family members to go on a trip with her and they said no. And I said, you just, you have the right to ask because that's one of the things she's learning how to do is learning how to ask. Yeah. I said, and along with that right comes the understanding that people have the right to say yes or no. Absolutely. You know, and so like my, you know, I want my, my staff to know that they have the right to ask, but that still gives me the right to say yes or no. I will hear them, but it doesn't mean they always get, you know, what they ask for too. So, uh, yeah, no, that's exactly, uh, that's, uh, um, that's exactly, that's exactly right. It was one of the things that I tell my own kids, which is just ask, mm-hmm. because the truth is, is that if you, if you want something and don't have it and then you ask for it and the answer is no, you're still in the, <laughs> you're not any worse off. You're still in the same place you were. Mm-hmm. And there's always a chance that if you ask, someone will say, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so I, I, I think that's, um, I think that's really, really, I think that's really, really important. And what it does is that it, 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 it I think especially for kids, but I, I, I find that it's, it's almost equally important for many adults is that it begins teaching some of the habits of self-advocacy, mm-hmm. which I don't think we do a very good job teaching. Um, but at the same time, because the answer can be no many times, it doesn't foster a sense of entitlement. Mm-hmm. Well, and so in the workplace, you know, there people don't have, not every organization has that sense that they can ask. I mean, isn't that true? 
They don't have a sense of that they can't what? They can ask. They can ask a question. Yeah, yeah, no, that's true. That's true. Right, I, I agree. I agree, because I think that there's a lot of timidity. There's a lot of timidity. There's a lot of conformity. There's a lot of risk aversion uh, at every level of the organization. Uh, and there is, in some ways, a kind of a stunning lack of, of um, curiosity and audacity. Mm-hmm. Not everywhere, but in many places. So, Dan, as we're wrapping up here, do you have a couple of takeaways on what people can do to start implementing, um, you know, this to, to motivate, help people, whether motivate themselves, their, you know, if it's, if it's their work environment, but how can they motivate people? Well, there are, there are all kinds of things. And in, in, in the book Drive, we have all kinds of tools and tips and exercises. In fact, the final third of the book is a toolkit that has maybe 70 or 80 practices and, and assessments and uh, ideas for how to put this in place in, in work or school at home. Uh, I guess one of my very favorite ideas is a business idea uh, that comes from an Australian company called Atlassian. Uh, it's an Australian software company, and they do something really cool. Once a quarter on a Thursday afternoon, they say to their software developers, uh, go work on anything you want. Do it the way you want. Do it with whomever you want. Do whatever you want. Uh, the only thing we ask is that you show what you've created to the rest of the company on Friday afternoon in this fun freewheeling meeting. Uh, they, they call these things FedEx days because you have to deliver something overnight. Well, it turns out that this one day of intense undiluted autonomy has led to all of these fixes for existing software, all of these ideas for new products, improvements to internal processes that had otherwise never emerged. And so this is a very different, and it really goes, Corn, to your, your very first question. This is a very different approach to motivation. It's not saying, hey, if you do something groovy, I'll give you a carrot. That mm-hmm. is the second drive, the reward and punishment drive. It's saying, you're a human being. We hire good people. Human beings and good people want to do good work. Maybe one way to help make that happen is simply to get out of people's way for a day. And that is one of my very favorite ideas. We also have ideas in there of the autonomy audit, where you can give yourself a quick assessment about how much autonomy you have. Uh, there are various kinds of questions and interesting exercises for how do you find your purpose. Uh, there's some uh, other kinds of tools for figuring out are you getting better at something that matters. And so it's really, I mean, again, it's, it's important to me in crafting these books that I talk about, you know, that it's serious and it's substantive and it's idea-driven, but that it doesn't end there. It also has some takeaways and some things that people can actually deploy to, to work a little smarter and live a little better. To put, put it into practice, right? Yes, exactly. To put it into practice. Well, and that's the purpose of my show, too, to put things into practice. So understand things intellectually, but then take a little nugget and put it into practice. Dan, thanks again for being a guest on my show today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. I'll look forward to coming back the third time sometime. That'd be great. This is Corinne Modokaitis, and you've been listening to How She Really Does It. My guest today was Daniel Pink, and he's the author of the New York Times bestselling book, Drive, The Surprising Truth About What Motivates Us. Early morning, fog is lifting. She's in a rowboat on a
Writes a screenplay, and she's learned.